Hey everybody, if you like the Lovecraft Show, take a moment and subscribe to us on your favourite podcasting app. Join us on the Lovecraft Show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and your favourite podcast app. <laughs> Can't wait for you to join us for more Lovecraft's fun and chat. Like, my wife and I have been together for quite a while now, and she's used to me making I have big dreams and she's quite good at grounding these big dreams and stuff like that. So when I said I was going to make a bicycle out of spaghetti, she scoffed and laughed. But imagine the look on her face when I rode past her. Hey, everybody. <laughs> it's a Lovecraft show. <laughs> that was one of the best ever, Jamie. I love that. That was so wonderful. My name is Mr. X Stitch. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. My name is Marion, and I would love to introduce you to Jeanette Sloan, who we've desperately wanted on the show for such a long time. Author, designer, all round fabulous woman, creator of BIPOC and Fibre. Jeanette, wow. Thank you so much for coming on the Lovecraft show. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be here with both of you. Very exciting. So how are you? I mean, how are you today? It's incredibly windy here and I could just, I'm looking in the garden and everything is just taking off. There's just, um, chairs have gone off down the garden. (laughs) (laughs) Do do you know what? It's actually not been too bad here. I was slightly disappointed that there wasn't this raging storm yesterday because I was really looking forward to it. But this morning it was, it was windy um, and the sky is blue and there's a kind of gentle-ish wind and luckily we didn't lose any bins all good no damage and nobody hurt it's fine we're good so Jeanette I mean there are so many things to talk to you about Mm. obviously you've had this fantastic career you've designed for Rowan you've designed for yourself or for all sorts of other people You've, you've done amazing amount of work in our industry where did this all begin I mean were you very creative as a child I mean we always sort of talk about creativity from a really young age and it's very interesting to hear everybody's different take on whether they were encouraged whether they weren't whether they knew at the beginning that they were going to be creative or what about you yeah I was always funny because I was talking to my dad this um this week my dad's 97 98 and I was always intrigued by how things work and to see my mum and dad making things so my dad way before I was born used to make shoes for my mum and um, shoes yeah he used to make shoes and this is when they were back in Barbados and uh and nobody came to they came to this country he became an electrician who used to work for London Underground or TFL as it is now Um, but he would make furniture in his spare time and he was all very handy around the house so he put our central heating in in the 70s I think it was so you know way before you were corky registered and stuff like that he just learned how to do stuff yeah and he would make lots of furniture in the house as a built-in wardrobes and my mum taught me to knit when I was seven so my mum could she could do tatting she did crochet she sewed so she was really really um, creative and skillful so it was her that taught me how to knit but it wasn't something that I'd envisaged being a career choice. It was just something that I guess not exactly encouraged to do, but I wasn't discouraged from doing it. So if I was interested in knowing how something was done or made, then they would show me how to do it. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? I think that I mean, maybe maybe this is something that's coming back, is that people now have the curiosity that that generation had before about fixing things and sort of make do amend. Because you, I mean, in the 70s and stuff, 
you had to be able to do it yourself. You had to be able to make things and do things. Nobody had to sort of, you know, unless you were sort of super wealthy to go out and buy things, you just learned how to do it yourself and you did it. Mm. And I think that, I mean, I think of my father, um, who is 90. I mean, he can fix anything. And my father-in-law Who's, who's 80 odd, he can fix anything. And it seems like there were those, that sort of generation of guys, and I say men actually because it was mostly men, who just knew how to fix things and, and, and knew how things worked. Mm. Engines, from engines to cookers to... Yeah, you couldn't just Google somebody and get somebody in. You had to learn how to do it or ask a mate how to do, if that you knew how to do it. So, mm. yeah, it was a, it was... You're right. I think we've kind of come back to doing that. And I think possibly lockdowns had a lot to do with it because there has been so many people who've been sadly kind of furloughed and can't go to work. So they've had to find something else to do. So for those of us who craft, it's just like, why is this a surprise to you that suddenly you can do these things? <laughs> yeah. You've been doing them for ages. Yes, you don't have to. You don't just, you know, I mean, I suppose now we've got the Internet, and we can Google how to fix things. We had to Google how to fix the washing machine the other day, how to do something or empty a trap or something. Mm. But I think um, when you watch sort of programmes uh, in the UK, we have a programme here called The Repair Shop, which is, you know, one of those things where they're restoring and repairing things from the past. But craft is all about making and restoring and building something from the ground up. It's mm. yeah, it's lovely. The curious thing about back in those days as well was you couldn't exactly go on YouTube to learn how to fix the things either. Yeah. So... I guess in some ways, obviously, you did have all your apprenticeships for proper crafts, didn't you? And those sorts of things. But I guess a lot of this knowledge was passed down. When you're, So you say your mum taught you to knit when you were seven. Was it something you actively continued? Or, and I wonder that about this in general, really. Sometimes when you learn a thing as a child, do your teenage years just get in the way? And then you pick it up later. That seems to be a thing sometimes, I think. I don't know. Or was it, did it stick with you? I, I, I remember being really frustrated by it. So I, I'm right-handed, but I knit like a left-handed knitter. Not that I knit the in the other direction, but I, I don't pick. I throw the yarn with my left hand. Wow. And I remember being frustrated. My mum was a really beautiful, elegant knitter, and she would just kind of be very graceful when she moved her hands across the needles, and she would throw the yarn with her right hand and I was just like if you need the yarn here why have you got it here so I just remember that you know thinking well I'll just hold it this way and I got on like that so uh, the other thing that really frustrated me was the fact that it kept curling around but that stocking stitch isn't it and also yeah. I was probably gripping on for grim death because I was just like <laughs> and you know that noise that um yarn makes if it's too tight and the needle's like yeah squeaky yeah. so I remember <laughs> that so I did knit um carry on knitting I'm not I think I probably picked it up and put it down and then in my teens I would knit a lot of um sort of intarsia jumpers because intarsia was in then and that I was, was the I thing would kind yeah. of go up to London so I grew up in um, East London and I'd go into London and kind of take the money that I'd earn and go to places like Liberties or Dickinson Jones which is now closed or John Lewis when the sales were on and buy my Rowan books and buy my Rowan yarn and knit my Rowan jumpers. Wow. And so having had that love of Rowan, then later on, when I think I'm right, you did work at Rowan for a while, didn't you? Yeah, I became a design consultant for Rowan. So when I moved to Scotland, I moved to Edinburgh and um, was just looking for a part-time job. And I just saw this ad in a paper that said, um, I think it was in Metro, and it said, oh, um, 
knowledge of hand knitting required but I hadn't hand knitted for a long time so in the interim I had been doing a lot of machine knitting I'd been selling designs as a freelance knit, um, knitwear designer but a lot of them were machine knitted some of them were embroidered um, so there'd been a bit of a gap then um, of probably about 20 years um, and then I kind of thought, oh, do I know enough about hand knitting to do this? So I just kind of went and got interviewed the job and I wanted it so much when I found out that it was Rowan. And I was like, yeah, I really want this job. So then I got it. And then that's how I ended up my kind of relationship with Rowan and ended up giving, um, doing a couple of designs for them as well. So um, I know I'm jumping about a bit here, but just going backwards <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Jamie laughing at me as usual. Um, so the design sort of feature... Where did that come from? So to, let's go back in time a bit. So Okay. So um, what was at school? I guess when you're at school, you kind of, you know, you do lots of things, don't you? And I just, I was always good at English um, and I always really enjoyed English and I did music, but it was art that I really, really enjoyed. So I think while I was at school, um, I would do lots of different crafts while I was at school. I was in the Batik Club in junior school and I just really enjoyed art and that was where my heart absolutely lay so I knew I was probably going to do something creative I still didn't think that knitting was an option um I think I at one stage I thought I was going to be a graphic designer and my husband still says now that I'm a frustrated graphic designer um or a furniture designer so it wasn't until I did a foundation course um in East London um that I then ended up thinking oh textiles is the path I'm taking yeah um, this is slightly off topic, but I've my cross stitch magazine that I make. The latest issue is the seventies, and as part of the research, I found a newsletter from a thing called the County Thread Society of America from nineteen seventy four, and it was the same thing. It was like hand typed and hand drawn charts and all these things that we just take for granted now. You know, it was brilliant to see that. So, like you say, you put all that design thought into one piece that is then gone, and it's not like oh, just email me and let me know how you've got on or anything like that. Presumably. You just cross your fingers and hope for the best. Well, that right? relationship ended then. So once they had the swatch, they could do what they liked with it. They didn't ask you how you achieved it. They just got, you know, technical staff to pick their way and, you know, decipher how it was done and use it as it was or use it to spark off another idea. So that was it. It was literally like doing a paper design, but in textile form. And then that was it. So I was never, at the time I was working as a technician um, on a degree course in Buckinghamshire so I kind of fitted that in around my job working as a technician I couldn't have done it full time I had a friend who did it and she was really really prolific but it takes a lot to be constantly pumping those ideas out all the time yeah and also in order to make money as well so yeah I kind of did that but I also worked as a technician which I really really enjoyed I did that for nine years and do you think the sort of the the Scottish chill in the air inspired the designs I don't know if it did actually. Really I've seen, I've seen, my, my just chunkier than they might be otherwise. It inspired like. the move south, unfortunately. <laughs> it was just so cold. It is just so it, cold. Uh, yeah, it's so beautiful though. So so amazingly beautiful. And I, it was just one of the best things I could ever have done because it it kind of led on to um, me publishing my books and then owning a yarn shop. You know, after me started off by meeting Sam, my husband. So it just kind of it triggered you know, a number of, like a turn in my, in the path of my life that it just wouldn't have happened if I'd stayed down here. So, so many good things happened in Scotland. And I got married up there as well. So it's just, you know, it's a really, really enjoyable time. What direction did your MA take? 
So it was textiles with computers, a computer applications. With hindsight, I didn't get the best out of my MA. I, I think I had expectations that that it didn't quite live up to, and I don't know whether that was on my part or not. But um, it was, you know, sort of using CAD and CAM, sort of computer-aided design and computer-aided manufacture to produce um, ideas. And I feel like I lost my way a little bit there because I was trying to combine machine knitted fabrics and hand embroidered fabrics. I think I was trying, I, I wasn't focused enough on my MA. Is it something that's come back to be useful? No. I think sometimes you find these things. No? No, <laughs> not in the slightest. I don't think so. It may be subliminally, it, it has, but I can't, there isn't now, I just kind of think, well, do you know what? I'm really glad I did that. It doesn't, it's not, I don't kind of think in my day to day now, that's come from having done that master's, which is a shame, yeah. really. But as I say, it led me up to Scotland and that led on to, you know, mm. to really good things. And I'm a, I'm a, I am a great believer in things being almost fated. So if I hadn't gone there, there's a lot of other stuff that wouldn't have happened. So I don't regret it. And maybe when the robot uprising happens, <laughs> then you'll be like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> now I know! <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, I I think textiles was a really exciting um, area. Like you say, when we we were going through that heady excitement of Intarsia and all those things. And Mm. I love hearing you talk about sort of the machine knitting. I've always wanted a knitting machine, but I've never had one because it, you know, but it's such a different skill set, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's it's totally different. And I kind of, I'm always disappointed and saddened when people say, oh, well, it's cheating. It's not cheating. It's still knitting and there's real, real skill to machine knitting. I think it's very, very underrated. And I think it may be partly due to the kind of bad press it got in the 80s and 90s. Do you remember EastEnders where Kathy Beale had a knitting machine and it was just that kind of, (laughs) oh, you know, she's knitting up a toilet roll holder, whatever it was that she's doing, (laughs) and it looked easy and it looked like it didn't require any skill. It does require It does, and it's very hard to do. It's so fiddly and you have to sort of moving the needles about and setting it up and doing all that. It's just, oh, gosh, I think people just think, oh, it's it's the quick way to make a jumper for example but actually although it technically is quicker in the knitting the setting up and the dreaming and the getting it ready you oh some bad machine knitting experience i think i like have a, i think you need a good teacher i do you need a good teacher <laughs> i'd yeah. love to i could i could you could knit a jump i've knitted a jumper in an afternoon oh if once you know you can do it and it is very if you've got the right teacher the right instructor you can machine it Anyone can machine it. <sighs> so did you enjoy teaching? I loved it. I mm. absolutely loved it. I got, and still do, I just get that real buzz from seeing that light bulb go on. I just love it. When you kind of, when you can see that one of your students has just got it, that is just the best thing in the world. Yeah. I feel very honoured to have taught a lot of people to cross-stitch, but I'm always very content that cross-stitch is so simple to learn that, you know, people's internal struggle with dealing with it. To be honest, a lot of the time it tends to be more like socially constructed than the technological challenge of it. Mm. Whereas I'd imagine with machine knitting and stuff, there's quite a lot of, of learning to be done before that breakthrough moment, right? So you must have to do a lot more hand-holding along the way. Yeah, yeah. And I think it is that it's that kind of, you know 
think about you know how is it threaded up once you've got that you've got to make sure there's no obstructions you've got to make sure the tensions right so yeah you've, there are lots of things so when that all comes together that's lovely and that can take you know it can take a while over sort of a course of a week or two when we were in like in a, a college setting seeing a student then go oh, and they all learn at different speeds because everybody does mm. so it's nice when those people who have been struggling finally get it that's mm. really lovely really really nice but you know this i mean there's bound to be people who have sort of apprehensions about cross-stitching yeah sure. yeah i mean i think because they what what i find sorry marion is um they overthink it a lot of the mm. time like and that's quite easy to do because they yeah. think it's going to be more complex whereas the beauty of cross-stitch is literally you've got holes and you put needles through the holes you know you don't have to give it much more thought than that yeah. but that's the thing where more often the struggle and it tends to be if i remember teaching men more often it's that narrative struggle that they have to get over. Lots of times the men are like cool with it, but I have had men who've just been like, oh, I can't, I can't handle this. It's too ladylike or, you know, I'm not an old guy. Do you know what I mean? And they don't phrase it like that, but there's yeah, definitely been but- a few people who've been like, can't cope with going up against the stereotype so hard or whatever. Yeah, it's the, it's the yeah. counting. I think what it is, there's something about, and I find this with knitting, crochet, anything, it's backwards and forwards from a chart. So if I have to, I want just the action of moving my head to look, my eyes looking at the chart and then back to the work and the chart back to that, I could just lose. It's some kind of weird spatial deficit. I don't get that because it's the op- <laughs> to me it's the opposite with knitting is you have to be like 135, 136, or like to me I'd lose track of that in a heartbeat. Like I don't maybe our brains evolved to be able to manage these mathematical undercurrents more readily. Or Definitely, something. it'll be something because I can't. I count all the time. I mean, there's like a there's like a voice in my head that counts all the time. Even when I walk up the stairs, it's like I'm constantly counting, and I, it's like a, almost like a comfort thing. I don't know what it is, but I just. So, are you not a chart follower? Now? Well, I, I can follow a chart, but no, but would you prefer but, not yeah, to? I prefer yeah. not to. And I think this is one of those things about what kind of learner you are. I don't think I'm a visual learner in the sense that. I love somebody showing me how to do something in that sense, but it, I'm not good at pictures. I would much prefer to read instructions than look at a picture. But I think it's just some sort of weird spatial deficit thing going on where I can't remember where I was in that split second. I'm much more, I see, I'm the total opposite mm. because all that text to me is just, I know how to read it, but I'm much more, I think also, particularly since my brain operation I like a picture because I can see where I'm up to and what I'm going next and even now if I'm if I'm charting something a design that I'm working on I will write big arrow Tuesday morning so I know exactly where I'm starting yeah even on my own designs but cross stitch it's all charted isn't it yeah but that's kind of okay because the trick is to just get a highlighter pen you know Mm. and just work it out and and even when you're working on a big piece of fabric sometimes you just to make like gridding stitches so just run a thin piece of thread every 10 blocks or so so that what you're looking at corresponds to the chart and a decent chart should break things down in blocks and stuff Mm. i know that i've got quite a visual memory because for instance i can still remember the covers of comic books that i've got in my collection and stuff like that so i know that's how my brain works so you can kind of hold on to those things and I mean, with cross-stitch, you learn to count carefully anyway, because I know that if, say, you slip a stitch or something in knitting, 
technical terms. Oh, um, Jamie. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> got technical good, there. Look at that. Whoa. Um, but, you know, you, you can unwind knitting quite quickly, can't you? It really you? is. I know. I yeah, can talk about yeah. a double-ended needle, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but with cross-stitch, it takes so much longer to unpick these things. That I think yeah. once you've done that thing of, like, having to unpick an hour's worth of work, you you make sure you count it. And it's again. so fine. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's super fine. Uh, Jeanette, I know you mentioned your brain operation there, and this is something I wanted to talk to you about. We often talk about craft and health. Uh, you've had some serious big battles to cope with. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us about those and, and how crafts helped you with those? Or, you know, how, how did you cope with craft after some of those? So, so the reason I chuckled those is because I just kind of, it's certainly not to make light of them because they have been awful. But just because I sometimes think, this is so ridiculous, the amount of illnesses that I've been through, and I'm very, very grateful to have come through mm. them. But it just, it does feel like talking about somebody else. Yeah. I do compartmentalise in my illnesses, almost like briefs to be worked through and then set aside. And that's not, not always a healthy way of approaching it, but it is the way that I've tended to approach them. So, yeah, I've had a number of incidences of cancer so I've had Hodgkin's I've had breast cancer twice and then I had two brain tumours um five years ago it would be in May and each time actually the first time I had Hodgkin's disease, I was actually at art college and I was diagnosed in between my first and second year so I I kind of had to take a decision at that stage whether to leave college or whether to stay and I chose to stay at college because I just thought what else am I going to be doing? Mm. Sitting around waiting to go to, for chemotherapy. So I thought, well, I'll just keep, I'll stay at college. So I did that. So I finished my second year whilst being treated for Hodgkin's. And I think it just, it, well, no, it just got me through. It helped me to focus on something else because otherwise all I was going to focus on was being ill. And I thought I'd rather focus on my course. Mm. So I did that. And it really helped me through. And it was, my parents were living in East London I was being treated at Bart's, but I was studying in Buckinghamshire. So I would travel home on the day before my chemo on the tube. And then mum and I would go to hospital. I'd take my coursework with me, sit there knitting or embroidering or doing whatever. And then they would call me for my chemo and I'd have my chemo and I'd go back to mum. So I just fitted it in, basically. It was it was almost like another part of my therapy. So I'd have my chemotherapy and then when I was well enough, I'd go back to college and then go back for chemo the next week. And when I had breast cancer, that was actually the first instance of that was when I was um, living in Edinburgh. That again, it was just something that just helped me take my mind off the general sort of day-to-day and the, the sort of the overwhelm of dealing with treatment. In the aftermath of my brain operation, that was different because kind of describe it as having your having a brain operation for me was like having my engine room disturbed so when you have operations on other parts of your body of course you feel it but I think I experienced it in a very different way because I was very apprehensive about how that brain surgery would leave me whether it would affect my personality Mm. whether it would affect my ability to do my job and also I was very much more aware of how life-threatening it was because I just thought if this lovely man has any kind of issue if there's any if he finds something more than he appeared on the scan then I may not come out of this operation mm. or 
I may come out a very, very changed person. Mm. And I possibly won't even remember these thoughts, having these thoughts before the operation. But bless him, John John Norris was my neurosurgeon. He was absolutely amazing. And I came out and I just remember being in hospital and thinking, okay, so if I'm going to get back to knitting, I'm probably going to try it now. Um, so I tried it. I think within a week of my operation, I was knitting. And I remember sitting in the, the waiting room, waiting to have the staples taken out of my head. So... They, I had a craniotomy, which basically they, they cut across the top of your head and then they get into your skull that way. So I had about 40 staples across my head and I had to have them taken out. So I remember sitting in this waiting room knitting lace. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Lace. Well, asked me why. Thinking, oh, well, something's still fine. Y- yes. Um, yeah, something's still working. And then I went and had my staples taken out. But it was it was just one needing to do that little bit and then I just put it down for a while I didn't do any more it was just almost like having to do that little test and just reassuring myself that that was okay and I thought okay now I can just relax back into my recovery and I just pick it up and put it down when I needed to that's absolutely amazing did you find that other people who were going through similar treatments because presumably when you go and you have your treatments you're in a room with other people in similar Mm -hmm. Were there other people who were doing crafts or were you like the only person there? I was the only one. So when I when I first had my Hodgkin's, it, I was literally an oddity. They were just like, I suppose because at the time I was, what, 20 when I had Hodgkin's. So I think it had seen this 20-year-old girl come in and knit when she was supposed to be having chemo. It was just, I mean, the nurses thought it was hilarious. Mm. It was just like, oh, that's really odd. And then when I had breast cancer in Edinburgh, I remember them. they gave me a line in the crook of my elbow. They gave me a pick line. And I remember when they put it in, I remember thinking, that's not going to work. And I said to them, that's going to affect my knitting and they thought that was funny and I just said no it's really gonna hinder me knitting and hinder my knitting and then within a couple of courses of the chemo they had to take it out because I'd cracked it doing that and so then they put in a hickman which goes straight down um it's actually put under the skin sort of near your shoulder blade and it comes out the tip of your heart I was like that's much more knitting (laughs) (laughs) I just sort of said to them I did tell you but no I've all in my particular circumstances i've never seen anybody else crafting when they've been receiving treatment I can't help thinking it should be prescribed even just a little cross stitch kit or absolutely. something to help pass absolutely the yeah. i think i think yeah. it would be interesting to see oh you know if there was more of it now i bet there is i bet, mm, um, I, bet, I, bet I also think people you know in the old days were a bit sort of nervous to be doing these crafts outside their homes whereas now you know everyone will take their you know knitting bag or whatever project bags with them and get it out on a bus or wherever yeah. but I mean it's um you've you've seriously been through the wars and um and, and live to tell the tale yeah. and be an inspiration to so many people well I'm not sure that I don't feel like yes, an inspiration. You have. I, I just feel like you don't get to say you're an inspiration. Yeah, we, we get, get to, to say you're an inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm very flattered, <laughs> but it, it does sit uncomfortably with me. It's just everyone has their thing to bear. They happen to have been mine. So I just, you know, I, I, I'm trying to really look after myself because we talk a lot about self care now, and I am really guilty about for you know saying oh yeah I'm going to look after myself and it's self-care day and I still find my way into working answering emails doing Instagram things so the last couple of um, months have been particularly difficult because my mum passed away in November so I am really you know taking having to take stock again yeah um, to be honest so 
Are you able to distinguish between work craft and personal craft? Is there a way to pull them <laughs> apart at all? Or? There is, but it's not an easy thing. Mm. I, I feel I literally get itchy fingers if I'm not doing something. So my husband Sam will say to me, are you still working? It's like, this isn't work. So it might just be that I'm sitting down in front of the television and relaxing by flicking through a book and going, right, well, I need to just kind of look at a stitch for that. There is a, a huge blurred line between the two things for me. And it depends if there's a if there's a deadline involved, then that's when the stress comes in. But if there's a nice long deadline, I don't mind doing work knitting out of work work hours. That doesn't bother me. Mm. It's yeah. the pressure of a deadline that makes that different. I always think when you work in a craft format, you know, like for me, cross stitch is the world that I inhabit, if you like, but I don't actually get any chance to do any selfish cross stitch mm. or anything like that. And then if I am doing anything related to that, I've usually got the work worries lodged in the back of my brain. So it almost feels like for me, I need to do, I want to do patisserie. Do you know what <laughs> I mean? Like do a craft thing that's got nothing to do with that yeah. so that yeah. I can in separate order to separate two. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's having really a clear at yeah. the end as well. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I think sometimes it is a bit of a busman's holiday. I find that to make something for myself is always the bottom of the list. And I, and yeah, and I think it must be so nice to have that at the top of your list, like most knitters do. If you don't work in this industry and you're, you're not doing any kind of craft related things for work then presumably you could just knit anything for yourself any old time but I but no I don't either um and it's yeah. such a treat when you do get to do that yeah so but like Jamie said I was kind of last year I thought I want to do something that's not related to knit so I bought some really beautiful red linen fabric to make a dress and also because I'm sick of you know just cheap cheap clothing and just and being as I get older I just find that I don't, I can't see clothes that really suit me. So I'm like, I'm just kind of settle into my, into myself and, the, you know, the style that I have and just cultivate a look that's, that's mine. So I bought myself some really beautiful denim fabric to make some trousers and some linen fabric to make a dress. And they're literally still in the box sitting on the desk. <laughs> so I just look at the patterns and go, oh, that's really lovely. Just put them away again. Assume me. <laughs> but this, yeah. this year, this year, I'm this going year. to do it. I'm going to do it's it getting year. it all out, isn't it? Getting a sewing mm. machine out, clearing the table. I wish it would be so nice to have a room. And it's very nice, actually, to have the time to be able to sit down and read a book. And luckily, mm. we have the fabulous Holly Butteris to tell us all about the books for this show. Welcome to the Snug. Holly, what have you got for us this week? Well, what haven't I got for you this week? I feel like Ooh. I feel like as I'm talking about other books, I'm mentioning other books while I'm talking about those books. We're taking notes. I'm writing down good. what you're saying. Yeah, that's a good plan, actually. I think I might do that. <laughs> yeah, so at the moment, I'm currently reading a debut novel by Ellie Eaton called The Divines. And I bought this book because it fits or seems to fit a very specific kind of book that I'm always searching for. I'm always looking for a book that gives me the same feeling as Donna Tartt's The Secret History or M.L. Rio's If We Were Villains. And that's basically elite boarding school, found family, group of kids and murder <laughs> and mystery. Oh, that's not much to <laughs> ask for, is it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a biography. <laughs> it's, um, it's a really specific kind of read and The Divine's 
was actually blurbed as more of a normal people meets the girls. But it has those elements of like an isolated boarding school meets mystery and murder. And we're following Josephine during her final years at St John the Divine, an English boarding school for girls. And we're sort of exploring the messy, complicated relationships between a bunch of teenage girls. And in the first couple of like opening pages, we know that one of those girls is killed at some point in the book. And it's just sort of like an unravelling of that history as Josephine retells it to her husband in, in the future. So that's what I'm currently reading. And that's The Divines. Yeah, The Divines by Ellie Eaton. Next on the old TBR is The Mothers by Britt Bennett. She's been really celebrated in the last couple of years, um, mainly for The Vanishing Half, which has just been long-listed for the Women's Fiction Prize, which is really exciting, and is also on my TBR. But I wanted to start with her um, first novel, which was The Mothers. It's following... Nadia and Luke, whose teen romance sort of ends in a pregnancy, and Aubrey, Nadia's best friend, they're all sort of caught up in a love triangle and there's secrets festering between them. I think it's a reflection on the decisions they made as teenagers and how it impacted their adult life and asking the question, if they had chosen differently, what would their lives look like? I think that's really interesting, especially from like the point of view of a mother. Like if you decided not to have kids, if you do have decided to have kids. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and really excited to get to that one. Yeah. How many books do you read a month? Just tell us. Uh, I think last month I read eight. Eight. Yes, I can see. And look <laughs> on Jeanette's face. She's like, what? <laughs> tell you what yeah. Jeanette, that's a, that is a conservative month for Holly. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, I read for like an hour in the morning before work, probably an hour after work. If I go for my daily walk, I listen to an audio book. I just read a lot. <laughs> this is why we've got her in the snug. She reads the book so that we don't have to. Yeah. Hang on. No, that's not right. <laughs> She's inspiring us to read the books, Jamie. She is. And if you want a Goodreads account to follow, I'd go and find Holly on Goodreads because she's probably got all the books you could ever want to yeah. read on there. Am I yeah, right? Yeah, I do. Keep up to date with my Goodreads. So if you want to see what I'm reading. Thanks, Holly. Thanks for having me, guys. So I met um, Lorna Hamilton Brown is an artist. She calls herself a knitting evangelist. <laughs> but she was studying for an MA at the Royal College of Art in textiles. And she had been told at an in the loop conference when she asked, or she commented that there weren't many black people at the conference. So Lorna is black. Sorry, I should just you know make that clear from the start. She was told by an academic that um, there weren't many black people at this knitting conference because black people, quote, don't knit, they crochet. So for Lorna, who is a um, a knitter and who was knitting, who was kind of slack-jawed at the uh, ignorance and the audacity of the statement. So anyway, she decided that she would dispel this myth by writing a, a dissertation. And as part of her research for this dissertation, she was told to get in contact with some knitwear designers and the only one that her tutor could think of was me. So Lorna and I forged a friendship having met as part of her research and then we had a number of conversations kind of going backwards and forwards. So it made me kind of question something, sort of openly question something that I had noticed for years. So I kind of thought, well, I can't, I can't literally be like a unicorn and be the only black knitwear designer. So I put up a, an Instagram post that said, how many black knitwear designers can you name? Because other than Shirley Payton and myself and Natalie Warner, who also designs for Knitting Magazine, um, I couldn't think of any others. So that really started it off for me. Because I was just thought, I can't be the only person or the only one of three. And then 
I was getting um, names from lots of people on Instagram about black designers, but also black indie indie dyers. Soraya Hussain from Malika Wire, who is an Asian designer, said, you know, if you think black people are underrepresented, Asian people are too. So that kind of opened the whole thing out. It's just like, well, there is something here. Um, there is a story here. So at the time, there were a lot of conversations about um, racism in the fibre community and lack of representation. So it was all kind of bubbling at the same time. And there'd been a number of conversations before I had kind of come to this. So it certainly wasn't something that I had instigated. It was just something that I kind of came into. So then I, I kind of um, wrote the piece Black People Do Knit, um, taking the kind of nod from Lorna's dissertation, but also the Instagram conversations, just saying, well, why don't we know about these people? Why aren't we seeing their work? So that's where that came from. And then I followed it up with a second article called A Colourful Debate, because obviously the conversation had kept going with quite a bit of energy. And as you say, quite a bit of difficult learning on all sides. Because there's a lot of people that don't want to talk about race. It's like, why is it always about race? Like, well, because for many of us, we can't turn off our colour. So, it, you know, when, when we're treated less favourably or we're treated with discrimination because of our colour, it is always about race. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's with, with the best with the best will in the world, if you're not a person of colour, you can't possibly talk about something not being yeah. racist because you just you don't, don't know. know. There were times through that period of time where yeah, there was a lot of difficult learning but also some really, really productive learning. And I hope that we've come out of it a much richer community now that people are sitting up and listening. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are some people also that never want to hear it. There will be people who will be sticking their, you know, their wool-clad fingers in their ears going, oh, I just want to stay in my nice safe space. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about politics and knitting. And you will never be able to engage those people with that conversation. But, you know, as a person of colour, and I'm in my early 50s, when I still experience microaggressions, we're not getting anywhere. You know, when I am, you know, I grew up in the 70s where I was, you know, used to the National Front marching and running home from school thinking, you know, I've got to get inside, having to, to you know, rub racist um offensive language off the wall outside my house and so whilst it may be mildly uncomfortable for somebody who would rather get back to their knitting crochet insert you know preferred craft when that's my lived experience and I still may face that when I step outside my front door here it's going to be a conversation we need to continue to have as long as people like me or people who are marginalized still have to have those nasty experiences Mm. because we're all human beings and you should be able to listen to the voices of other human beings for them to say this is not good enough this is how I'm being insulted this is how I'm being treated we should be able to do better we're supposed to be a very intelligent species it's not a difficult thing and if you can treat a dog with empathy and respect you should be able to treat another human being with empathy and respect Oh goodness me! Absolutely, it does seem as though there's a there's a real structural thing as well. You know, when I reflect on this, and I think it's probably the same in needlework. It's like you, when you realise that there's this deficit, it's a bit embarrassing first of all because you don't realise there's a deficit until someone goes, "Hey, look, 
you know, there's an elephant in the room, you know, there's this mm-hmm. issue. But then you, you start to learn about the overarching structure. So as you said, when you go to the shows and you see that there aren't black designers with stalls and those sorts of things, there's it's not like deliberate decisions are made, but you understand, you know, the magazines do this, the shows do this, the companies that produce the patterns do this, and they've all just had this implicit, this is the way it is, this is how it goes. Mm-hmm. And then and when you see those constructs, suddenly you're just like, yeah. I think for a lot of people, there probably is that embarrassment because they've not even understood the perspective and the position that they're within. Well, because they've been served up this image, this picture for all these years. And so that, that's all they're seeing, you know, people, that's all they're seeing all the time. And uh, I can remember when this started being spoken about on Instagram, I remember talking to my sister about it. I said, you just won't believe what's going on here, go and look at a load, a wall of knitting patterns. Just go and look and tell me if you can see one non-white face. And of course, those patterns, it's just like a wall of white people in jumpers. What, what's been interesting, it's just, but I had a conversation with somebody and I, and, and I won't name them, but I, she said that she'd been to a knitting retreat and um, I asked the question, I said, so was everybody at the Little Retreat white? And she said, yeah. And I said, didn't that strike you as odd? Do you live in a world where you see nobody but white faces? It's as simple as that. It's as simple as mm. if you go outside and you see your brown neighbour, you see your, you know, you see an Asian friend, you see, I guess you need to look at uh, uh, how... That inclusion is reflected in your friendship groups. And it's not always possible. You don't just go and befriend a black person just to tick a box. But if your experience day to day is that you don't live in a world that is purely populated by white people, why would your magazines or publications, why would they... If your world is diverse, why isn't the publishing world diverse? Mm. It's just a reflection of the world, the way the world is. It's not a kind of, you know, it's not a a kind of idealistic dream. It's a reflection of reality. Mm. So it's not like, you know, there's all these angry black people stamping their feet and saying, well, we want, we we just want the world to be reflected the way that it is. Mm. Absolutely. That's all. It's not an unreasonable thing. To, to expect it's not an unreasonable expectation it's a realistic expectation and I think there's so much further to go there's so much more we could all do it's how it should be this is exactly what you say it is how it should be it is but it's the tip of the iceberg so it's not enough just to put a brown face I'd like the photographer to have been brown or a person of colour the art director the person editing the magazine the person publishing the magazine absolutely so it's not just about oh We've got a brown model in, and she's not too brown, and her hair isn't too kinky, and it's this. You know, it's not about that. It's about seeing that feed all the way through, absolutely, from the model back to yeah. the people producing them, the publications, the people who work at the yarn companies as well. It has to start somewhere. So back to that Instagram post. So that that kind of started me off. Um, compiling a list which is difficult now because I'm a, a bit kind of conflicted as to starting the, the the POC designers and crafters list just because I thought this is something easy that I can do and I put together a, a list of I'd collated a list of the names that I'd found through Instagram and put them on my blog and that was the they were the first seeds that were sown for BIPOC in fiber so BIPOC in fiber is a, a a database now it's a direct it's starting as a directory but it's going to grow into other things where if you're looking for a a BIPOC 
So BIPOC is black, indigenous or person of colour. In the UK, we would say BAME, but I hate that acronym, mm. mostly because it sounds like lame. But, mm. <laughs> um, and acronyms don't work for everybody because they tend to huddle everybody together in groups. And we are all individuals as human beings, as well as people of different ethnicities. So I started that um, directory in order for people to make it easier for people to find black designers, Asian designers, indigenous designers, indie dyers, crocheters, makers, photographers. So it's not just about people who are making, but also people who work with people who make. So we're also looking for tech editors and art directors and and, uh, photographers, sort of the um, the sort of additional um, services as well. When we we interviewed Kiara Leroy in the previous series, um, who's an embroiderer, and um, she's based in Kentucky. And one of the things that happened there was actually they proactively got together the creative sector of people of colour and kind of brought them all together so that they had a sense that they were part of a, like a community. Like you, you creating this list gives people an opportunity to go, there's more people out there doing these things and to bring them together. And she said there was a great harmony and it was almost like a big relief when actually they all got together in the same place and could just be black people being creative throughout, you know, and it's just that relief. So, I mean, are you finding that starting to happen here where you've got people building connections off the back of the BIPOC and fibre list and, and meeting and working together and stuff? Yeah, I hope so. Yes. And and the, the good thing about the directory is that it's actually inviting people from the industry like publications to go and find other BIPOC people who are working in industry and inviting them in. So when you kind of say you, you kind of go to a fibre event when we could go to fibre events and mm. you're seeing a predominantly white list of vendors, that was beginning to change. Mm. And I think now that um, there are virtual events, obviously, because we can't meet in person, they are much more diverse now. But as you say, we still have a long way to go. Um, but yes, that is, I think it is encouraging people to also co- to collaborate as well. So I think it's making it more, it's easier for people to do their own thing. I think this is all. Yes. To, to get together and, and kind of pool ideas and come up with collaborative projects that showcase those, those, um, those makers and designers and indie dyers. Hmm. I was just going to say, I think that's the thing. There's no denying that turning a ship of this size is something that is a very long term mm-hmm. project, but you feel like, almost the most important step is it's that awareness thing isn't it and it's for the people to be able to get together and and work in those ways and from what Kiara was saying because that was very much a tangible version of this in a place you know where where she lived was a very white area you know so for these people to get together there was such an acceleration of their creative collaboration off the back of it they almost felt free to do these things and it almost kind of like a mini explosion you know and you kind of hope that we'll get this kind of momentum pandemic notwithstanding. It would be fascinating to go to a knitting and a stitching show in two years' time and see if how things have changed. And as you said as well, when it comes down to Asian and other cultures as well, when you stop and think about it, even me just being like... It isn't the same being a, a man doing cross-stitch, but mm-hmm. minority things and suddenly you're just like, oh my God, suddenly you just realise how very focused it's become. But yes. at the same time, you think there's so much transformation potential if we can celebrate the opportunity and if we can get over ourselves. Yeah, It feels like that. Maybe it has to be that kind of... I like to think with my 
cross stitch magazine i'm like the uber of the cross stitch magazine because i'm going well i know how they do things <laughs> but i'm going to come up from underneath and do it that way yeah. you sometimes think maybe the same thing has to happen with the shows and stuff like that you know yeah. we have to yeah. restructure it and just start from scratch and the thing is it involves people taking the initiative and making the effort because it's so easy just to sit back and have things, you know, like the shows. Well, this is the way, you know, we've got this vendor list. We always pick the same people. We always do the same layouts. We always focus on the same things. And it makes life easy for them, doesn't it? But now I think the penny's beginning to drop that there's benefit for everybody in seeing a whole world of crafters and people as they really are to make it a much more representative and enjoyable space for people coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember Gigi, a gay glass pie that we talked to, and she's the most extraordinary woman, absolutely fantastic woman. But she told us the most, you know, the stories of when she would walk into these yarn shows and she was the only woman of colour there. And, you know, people just used to watch her walk down the aisles. It's just, yeah. it's just horrific. Yeah. And, and sort of question her picking up balls of yarn or skeins of yarn. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's just not the reality that anybody wants. We want it, like you say, to, to be how it actually is, yeah. which is just anybody can be knitting. Yeah. What was really exciting was, and, and it's been curtailed by the pandemic, the best thing that had happened was we went over to um, New York for Vogue in 2020. It seems like so long ago because <laughs> yeah. this pandemic seems to have been dragged on for so mm. long. So I work, I'm um, a member of Vogue's Diversity Advisory Council, along with Lorna Hampton brown Anna Campos, Felicity Ford, Diane Ivey, Louis Borrier, and Cecilia nelson Hurt. I think that's everybody. Anyway, so there are eight of us. We had never met, but we met for the first time at last January's Vogue. And I'd never been, I'd been to two Vogue's before then. So New York was the big, big show and we were all looking forward to it. And it was the 10th anniversary of Vogue as well. And the first time that we had met as the DAC. But what was really interesting was there were so many black people at that show saying this show feels different. Because Mm. the conversations we've been having, this show feels different. The conversations and also the fact that Vogue was one of the the businesses that had been criticised for not making their publications more inclusive and not making their shows more inclusive. And we have done a lot of work as part of that council in taking on those criticisms and doing something to change that narrative and to change the experience for people of colour and for people who have access, access needs. So for disabled people visiting those shows. So we were, you know, in the process of turning that ship around, but it felt very different. A lot of people who are used to coming to Vogue said that that show in particular felt very different. And I have never seen so many black faces at an event. And it is different because it's the States and because Vogue is a very big show. So it's, it's possible to do it. Yeah. And I want to say just now, actually, we, we will be putting all of the links to BIPOC and Fibre and all of these the things that we've talked about into the show notes. So for anybody who's listening, have a look on the show notes. Everything will be there for you to dive into and read. It's just so exciting. Loads of really great resources for you. So the reason I kind of called it BIPOC and Fibre and spelled it the American way is because people always tend to look to the States for things to come up. And so I thought it'd be interesting to kind of, as somebody who's British, to give it an appearance that it was an American um, global directory, but it is global. 
But also what's been interesting is over the last year or so, there's been a sort of change in crafts that are kind of coming up. So there's like a, uh, like crochet is kind of very much kind of coming up now. Yeah. Because knitting always gets the kind of, it always kind of gets more press. It's almost like it's the preferred craft. And I don't have any, I'm not a, you know, a craft snob. But knitting seems to always kind of get more press, um, whereas, but crochet is coming up. And the thing I've noticed that there's a lot of BIPOC macrame artists have come up in the last year. A lot. I'm seeing a lot more of those on my feed. I think it's so exciting that these other crafts are, and I say younger younger designers, younger crafters are doing this, because I think, you know, um, not to exclude anybody that's older, but... I do find it absolutely thrilling the way that some of these young designers are sort of looking at the same technology that we're used to. So like knitting with crochet, macrame, and then they're using them, they're applying those technologies to new things. It's like, so crochet, you know, even the simplest things like where cables up until, you know, we're really the province of knitting. And I I know I've said this a lot Mm. of times, but now we are seeing the most stunning crochet cabling work, beautiful garments, amazing colour work. These are things that we would never have thought crochet was capable of in the 70s when it was like blankets or bikinis. And now there are these beautiful, fine worked crochet garments with loads of drape and beauty really fantastic color work i can remember a few years ago in as when we were love knitting and love crochet showing somebody a design from a, an amazing crochet designer called little doolally and it was a baby blanket which had a deer on it like a bambi and said look look at this how amazing is this and they said but, but but that's knitting. I said, no, no, it isn't knitting. It's crochet. And suddenly, you know, people are are finding ways to recreate the, the sort of technologies that we've had, the techniques that we have in knitting, and they're using them in crochet. And then macrame suddenly. Um, I have had my own personal journey with macrame just recently, but we'll, <laughs> we will talk about more that, on that more on that later. <laughs> okay. But I just I think it's incredible the way that we are celebrating. And creating the most beautiful things for the home. And in no doubt in my mind, mm. the macrame will come into other forms and tatting will be back. I love it. It's so exciting. I've never been able to get my head around tatting. I am not a crochet designer and I would I would kind of take my hat off to anybody that is a crochet designer. But yeah, I think crochet's time is really, really mm. coming. Um, and so Alison, who I work with at um, BIPOC in Fibre, Alison Chu has um, just launched a new magazine called Moret, which is a crochet magazine. And it's not your granny swears. It's, you know, it's looking at giving crochet the platform that knitting magazines have always traditionally had. Amazing. So I'm really looking forward to the first issue of that. Wow. Yeah. As someone who also launched a groundbreaking (laughs) magazine off the back of a Kickstarter campaign. (laughs) Well impressed there, because that was how I did it as well. Yeah. And you know, we'll put all the links, Jamie. We always put, we have to stick in Jamie's Cross Stitch magazine because it is so fantastic. That'll be going on the show notes as well. If you don't already subscribe to that, you (laughs) must. I should probably get in touch with them and be like, here's the mistakes I made in the first year. (laughs) That's fantastic. It just goes to show, though, if you can get that kind of interest with a Kickstarter, there obviously is that 
kind of real hunger for it in the marketplace yeah. so you know why the well do you know what it's just well the bigger publishers don't do it because it means that we can create our own things yeah we're not restricted to, to relying on the big established publica- publication publication yeah. i think there's there's we probably need to get you on for another hour because i haven't even touched on the overarching structures to do with publishing and shows and and etc oh. etc there's so much we could go into <laughs> but time is past I, what, what i oh. wanted to do i want to uh, do a quiz I'm going to completely change change <laughs> oh. the turning of things now, if this is all right. But okay. this is a quiz that I've chosen especially for you. <laughs> and, okay. and what I'm going to do, it's called the Duran Duran Son Lyric <gasps> Quiz. Because oh, I know yes. that you like Duran Duran. <laughs> I've done a bit of research here. So what I've got is I've got so four... where on earth did you get that oh, from? Man. This is what I do. You know, I sit here looking all pretty, but actually it turns out I've done a oh, bit of Oh, no, I can feel now. the pressure now. So, <laughs> so I've, okay, got, um, oh. I've got four sets of lyrics, and what I'm going to do okay. is I'm going to read them out to you, and you just have to name the Duran Duran song. I okay. feel like I'm not setting you up for a fall oh. here. Let's go with the first one. Ready? Uh-huh. I'm, I'm just going to do them in funny voices or like a pub singer style, but I think I'll just say them. In touch with the ground, I'm on the hunt down. Like the <gasps> oh my goodness, she's fast, she's fast. Straight away. That was amazing. Right, okay. See them walking hand in hand across the Girls bridge. At... <gasps> she's on fire, Jamie, she's on fire. I think this lady might be a bit of a Duran Duran fan. Uh, this one's probably very easy. I'm on a ride and I want to get off, but they won't slow down the roundabout. I sold the Renoir in the TV set. Don't want to be around when this gets out. The reflex. Very good. <laughs> Here we go. And the final one. This one might be a bit left field. Let's see if it works. Nightfall covers me, but you know the plans I'm making. Still, oversee, could it be the whole world opening wide? A sacred why, a mystery gaping inside, the weekend's why. Oh, beautiful kill. Wow. Very good. See, I knew you'd get it. I had to really not read. I was trying to read those not in the rhythm oh, of it, but at the brilliant. same time you're like, but they won't slow down. She's a super fan. Honestly, if you yeah, could I see my Duran Duran record collection, it's just ridiculous. And not just albums, 12 inches as well. Oh, <laughs> really? superb. That is so they funny. Really <laughs> Welcome to the Lovecraft Showcase, where we feature makers that we think you need to know about. This time around, it's textile artist Nikki, aka Utopian Fallopian, whose fibre art vulvas need to be seen to be believed. Hi, my name's Nikki, and I'm the artist behind Utopian Fallopian. I specialise in making soft sculpture vulva art, which is made out of fabric, displayed in embroidery hoops, and often embellished with other fibre techniques such as embroidery, applique, crochet, and more. My absolute favorite thing about being a maker is being able to share that with other people there's nothing quite like the sensation of someone else enjoying your work owning it displaying it and feeling like all those hours that you put into not only this particular piece but in learning the skills that you're using at that point as well has really had a a profound effect on somebody else it's a wonderful thing I think the drive to be creative mostly comes from just a need to express myself in some form. 
exercise my mind, keep my hands busy. And then also if I'm exploring a subject I really enjoy, using a a technique that I've wanted to try for a while, that all really adds up to a, a wonderful creative feeling. I'm a huge fan of other makers on the internet um, who are kind of doing it out of their living rooms like I am or something like that, kind of what I guess you'd call smaller creators. Some of my personal favourites are Molly over at The Nude Needle, Samantha at Cruel Therapy, Sarah at Atypical Stitches and Emily at Bottom Stitch. They're all wonderful people, but also incredibly talented artists that are, you know, doing really cool and fun things and a lot of things that are very emotionally resonant and heckin' powerful and a lot cooler than I can even describe. Where do you see the future of your craft and your community going? Especially with the pandemic and the amount of people that were at home and then suddenly learning crafts especially and other skills, I think there's a real movement into into understanding that it is something to be valued and skills that are fun and important to have and super useful so i really I really feel positive about the future of the craft and the community in general uh yeah, I think it's going to be good times. Awesome, thank you. And there you have it. That was Nikki, aka Utopian Fallopian. I love it when an artist pays attention to a single subject matter and explores it. It's truly wonderful to take a look at her Instagram, see what she's up to, and I'm sure you'll be a big fan of her in no time. Be sure to tune back next time for another Lovecrafts Showcase. Clearly, you know, we've run out of time for this, but we things we'll have to talk about the next time we get you back. Uh, life in Hove and down on the South mm-hmm. Coast. Charlie Harper oh, and the artwork. Yeah. You and I have both got the same set of bird oh, stickers. Oh, really? I just saying. love those. They're just beautiful. So mm-hmm. good. Slow gin and cranberry gin oh, making. Oh, can we talk about... We've Surely we've got and time to talk about that. We could talk about slow gin mm-hmm. for a minute because you blew my mind recently, didn't you, Mary, and when we were talking about slow gin with the secret ingredient that you yeah, put in Yeah, my auntie Joan... Um, who's long gone, but she used to make slow gin every year. She was the person who sort of introduced me to making slow gin. And she would always pop in two or three almonds per bottle. Oh, right. And she said it gives it just that, and it does, a beautiful dimension and just a little bit of dryness. You wouldn't know there were almonds in there, but you'd just be like, oh, it really makes a difference. Yeah, just two or three almonds per bottle. I would never, ever, that is really left field, would never have thought about that at all. And before this podcast completely turns into a <laughs> make-your-own-booze <laughs> podcast, this is another one, just final thought as well, uh, take a bottle of vodka and a packet of Werther's Originals, <laughs> give it four months and you get caramel vodka think... that is as beautiful oh as it is deadly. Goodness. Okay. Anybody would think we were big drinkers. Oh, well, I was just thinking yeah. that. This isn't ending well, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that wraps things up. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you. It's been really, really enjoyable. Thank you so much for having me. So in our traditional way of wrapping things up then, my name is Mr X-Ditch. And I'm Marion. And I work hard. He works hard. Every day of my life, I work till I ache in my bones. (laughs) At the end, at the end of the day, I take home my hard-earned pay all on my own. I get down, down on my knees, knees, and I start to pray till the tears run down from my eyes. Lord, somebody 
somebody, please, can anybody find me somebody to Lovecrafts? Thanks very much, everybody. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.